I thank you for that good singing tonight. I invite you to take your Bibles, if you will, and turn to Genesis chapter 37. Genesis 37 tonight. Let's try chapter 38. I think we worked 37 over already, so uh, tonight we want to look at conformity with corruption, Genesis 38. Genesis 38, I, I guess we will go back and read one verse in chapter 37, maybe that's what I have in mind there, but uh, uh, as we uh, look at this tonight... Uh, and if the Bible were not inspired of God, Genesis 38 probably would not be here. Uh, it doesn't take, or does not make God's people or the sons of Jacob look very good. If this episode had happened to one of your family members, I think you'd want to keep it quiet. Unless, of course, you were offered a lot of money and you were to, maybe Oprah would come and have you tell it to the world. But you know, this is the kind of thing that you'd want to kind of keep quiet. And so it's probably a, uh, a chapter that we would rather avoid. You know, why hang your dirty laundry out for everyone to see? Do you know what? God has a way of hanging in full public view things that we would cover up. And aren't you glad you don't live in Bible times to have your embarrassing family secrets put in the Bible? <laughs> hanging dirty laundry in public view is embarrassing not only for those whose laundry it is, but also for those who have to view it. When you're around someone who shares intimate problems too freely, you start to squirm and you get to feeling awkward. You don't know what to say, so you mumble something and you try to change the subject. And that's the reason why many preachers and commentaries have that kind of approach to Genesis 38. They kind of skim through it, or they skip it, or they move on to the life of Joseph, and they say, well, we're not going to talk about this chapter 38. That's, that's too, uh, too uncomfortable, too awkward. But you know, God saw fit to hang his, this dirty laundry in full public view, and it's put here for our instruction. Critics allege that some editor mistakenly put this chapter in the Bible, out of context. But that view is both arrogant and unnecessary as well. What at first glance looks like an interruption to the story of Joseph is actually what God has for us as far as a lesson about, about even about Joseph. Now we won't hear him mentioned too much here, but uh, it looks like an interruption but it's very important for us to understand as it talks about in verse 2 about the generations of Jacob. This chapter shows us why Joseph, in God's providence, had to be removed 
to Egypt. You think, well, God could have done that a different way, couldn't it? Well, he didn't choose to do it a different way. But this chapter will be the introduction to why Joseph is removed to Egypt. God's covenant people were becoming conformed to the corruption of Canaan. It's kind of a meanwhile back at the ranch glimpse of what was happening in Canaan during the 22 years from Joseph's sale into slavery to Jacob's family move to Egypt and to preserve his people from becoming absorbed into the Canaanite culture, God moved them into Egypt where they became slaves. And uh, this forged Israel into a distinct people and prepared them for a later conquest of Canaan and when God's time for judgment on that corrupt culture was ripe. This story is also here to show us a contrast with Joseph's response to Potiphar's wife. I suppose you could call this a woulda, coulda, shoulda shoulda story. But there are two themes that run through this chapter. The first is how quickly God's people can become morally corrupt. Judah marries a Canaanite woman and blends in completely with that corrupt culture. His culture or corruption is contrasted with chapter 39, where Joseph resists the advances of Potiphar's wife. The second theme is the holiness and grace of God. The holiness and grace of God. These two qualities are in perfect tension. God's grace never negates His holiness, nor does His holiness nullify His grace. God's grace is seen when He strikes dead two of Judah's son for their sins. But God's grace overcomes the gross sin of Judah and Tamar so that their son Perez becomes a part of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 1, we read that. And so we learn that while God's people are prone to corruption, God is marked by holiness and grace. And since the major part of this chapter deals with the corruption of Judah, I believe God wants us to take a sober look at how prone we are to all of moral corruption. Notice, first of all, God's people are prone to corruption. You know, it would have been great if being born into a godly family would have somehow protected us from picking up on this world's moral corruption. Some of you, including myself, were born into Christian homes. Some of you did not have that opportunity, that privilege. You became believers later in life. But you know, some of us who were born into a godly family, it would have been nice if that could have protected us. And I think it did somewhat, somewhat, but not completely. Because it doesn't work that way. We're like Pigpen in Peanuts. The Peanuts cartoon strip. You know who Pigpen was? He's the little guy that has the dust cloud rolling around him all the time. Uh, he, can, he can go in and get a bath, and he'll step outside and, whew, he's instantly covered with dirt. Now, I've known some kids like that in my own family, some grandkids like that. You know, you clean them up, and as soon, soon as you get them cleaned up, they're dirty already. Judah, the son of Jacob, the grandson of Isaac, who was still living during part of this time, 
the great-grandson of Abraham, a member of the chief family God was dealing with on this earth, lived just as the Canaanites lived, and you may have been born into a godly family. Perhaps your parents, your grandparents, were godly people. But Judah's life shows us that it's easy for you to become corrupt as our morally putrid culture has become so corrupt. Judah's corruption shows us a progression. Corruption begins when you distance yourself from God's people. And so we see in Judah a distancing yourself from God's people. Notice in verse 1, it says, And it came to pass that at time, that time that Judah went down from his brethren and turned into a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. Now that wasn't an accident. Uh, it involved a choice on the part of Judah. Now, we don't really know the reason for his choice. Perhaps he saw the way Hira and his people of Adullam lived and thought, you know, I don't want to live a boring life like my grandfather Isaac or my father Jacob. I want some adventure. I want some excitement. I want some enjoyment out of life. So I'm going to move down there near Hira. And even though his brothers at that point were not a very godly bunch either, Judah's move signified a move away from the covenant people of God. And that's where corruption begins. Many times it happens in the teen years. A young person is attracted to the lifestyle of the popular kids over at school. Perhaps he made a profession of faith as a child, and yet he's not interested in the things of God. He thinks his parents must have migrated from another planet. And so at some point, the teenager says to himself, you know, I'm going to hang around with the group at school, and I'm going to distance myself from this church crowd. But it won't be long until he's just like them in his thought life, in his language, and in his morals. But you know what? It's not only true of teenagers. The Bible says to all of us, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 33, Be not deceived, evil communications corrupt good manners. And it's not just for teenagers, it's for adults as well. It tells us over in James chapter 4 and verse 4, Know ye not that friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore be a friend of the world is an enemy of God. You know, we may think we'll stand our ground. You know, we're just, uh, we're going we're gonna to stand firm. Before you know it, we'll be drifting. There are those who will balk at this teaching tonight. And it's true that we need to build some relationships with the pagan people around us because we need to be able to get to know them so that we can lead them to the Lord Jesus Christ. But to do so for the purpose of camaraderie, of friendship, is going to corrupt us. It's not going to convert them. 
And so when we have these verses like this, be not deceived, uh, evil communications corrupt good manners. When you have verses like James chapter 4 and verse 4, we balance them with the instructions that the Lord Jesus Himself gave us in John 17. Now I know this is kind of small for you to read, but uh, all uh, I'll just read it. And it says, And all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to thee, Holy Father, keep through thine own name those that thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me I have kept, and none of them is lost but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And now I come to thee, and to these things I speak in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world, I pray not that thou shouldst take them out of the world, but thou shouldst keep them from evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. So God has sent us into the world because the world needs Jesus. The world needs to hear the the gospel. So we don't isolate ourselves and say, I'm never going to ever get close to those wicked, corrupt people. We've got to somehow do that, but we cannot become their friends, and we cannot just hang out with them and say, you know, this is great. I'm going to see how the world lives. See, the reality is that although we we must be careful in our relationship to the world, that we maintain a healthy relationship with God's people. We don't just just, uh, uh, separate ourselves from the uh, folks down at the church and say, well, I'm going to hang out with the world because I'm going to try to win them. We need a balance, and we need to be with God's people. We need to be with God's people so they can encourage us. They can help us. They can pray with us. You know, the world, your worldly friends are not going to be able to do that. They'll encourage you the wrong way. They might even, out of the goodness, quote, of their heart, lend you some money or give you something, but they're not going to pray with you. You need people that will do that. You see, corruption often begins when a person makes a choice to distance himself from God's people and to build friendships with the worldly people. And then corruption takes root when you marry outside of God's people. Marrying outside of God's people. Judah saw a Canaanite woman, the daughter of a man by the name of Shua, whose name probably means riches. Her name is really not given here. It says in verse 2, Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he took her and went in unto her. That means he took her in marriage. The emphasis here is clearly on the physical, not the spiritual. Judah saw her. He liked what he saw. 
Her daddy was rich. And so he took her and had intimate relationships with her. And that sounds like the basis of a lot of marriages today. Judah and his wife had three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. They grew up. And, uh, of course, uh, they got married. And marriage at the age of 15 was not uncommon in that culture. But Judah took a wife for his oldest son, Ur, named Tamar. So Judah, contrary to his great-grandfather Abraham's strong warning, had picked a Canaanite wife for himself and now for his son as well. And so it's not surprising to read that Ur was so evil that the Lord took his life. His sin is not mentioned, but he must have been a wicked man. And then Judah told his second son to go to Tamar, perform his duty as a brother-in-law to her. And that was what they called a leverite marriage, a leverate marriage from the Latin lever, meaning husband's brother, a common custom in the ancient Near East, which was later codified in the Mosaic Law. And that was that if a man died childless, his brother was to marry the widow, and the first son was regarded as the heir of the deceased man. Onan apparently married Tamar, but he did not want to give his brother an heir, so he interrupted the act of of, uh, intercourse, and for his refusal to raise up an heir for his brother, God struck him dead. He was not struck dead for practicing birth control, but for his selfishness in wanting his brother's inheritance for himself. And so Judah didn't know why his sons were dropping dead. All he knew was they married Tamar and then they died. So he wasn't about to have a third son marry her, so he told her to go back to her father's house and wait there until the third son, Shelah, uh, was old enough to marry, but he didn't intend to go through with it, as it tells us in verse 11. Says, and then said Judah to Tamar, his daughter in law, remain a widow at thy father's house till Shelah, my son, will be grown. For he said, Lest peradventure he die also as his brethren did. And Tamar went and dwelt in his father's in uh, her father's house. You could say, in Judah's mind, you know, he, two sons of married. Tamar and they both die, she must be jinxed. Don't want anybody else to marry her. Well, for centuries, Satan was using intermarriage with the ungodly people to corrupt those who had godly homes. And you know what? It's still working. Judah was a nominal believer at best, but when he married his this Canaanite woman, it was ensured that their children would be thoroughly pagan. She didn't train them to fear the Lord. If God hadn't struck them dead for their sin, those sons of Judah would have turned his descendants into paganism. And if you're single tonight, it's crucial that you wait on the Lord for a godly mate. Corruption begins when you distance yourself from God's people and it takes root when you marry outside of God's people. And thirdly, corruption comes to fruition when you live in conformity to a corrupt culture. 
living in conformity to a corrupt culture. Now, several years go by here, and Sheila is old enough to marry, and it's becoming obvious to Tamar that Judah isn't going to keep his word. And since she's been twice widowed, her chances of finding a husband and having children are very slim. Not having children was a disgrace. Being childless widow, Tamar wouldn't have been provided for when her parents died. And so she comes up with a plan to trick Judah into getting her pregnant so that she would be the mother of his heir. Now Judah's wife had died and he had mourned for her. It was time for the shearing of sheep. This was a festive time. And this temptation uh, was sharpened by the uh, Canaanite cult, which encouraged ritual fornication as a fertility magic. And so what Tamar does is uh, here is she takes her widow garments off and she dresses like a cult prostitute. She puts on a veil and she sits in a very conspicuous place where she knew Judah would pass by. Sure enough, Judah saw her, assumed that she was a prostitute, and he solicited her services. She probably had disguised her voice, not expecting to be Tamar. He, he didn't even notice. They negotiated a price, one kid goat. And she took some collateral so that he would pay her later, but the collateral... Uh, not the pay, was what she was after. She took his seal and a cord, a kind of a uh, kind of like, uh, I guess you could call it his visa card. <laughs> because it was, a, it was a, 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 a cylinder, it was kind of a, a seal on the cord around his neck, and whenever they had a business deal, uh, he would roll it in hot wax and he would sign the deal with it. Well, she took that for collateral. She also took his specially carved staff. And they had their intimate relations, and Tamar conceived and went home and put on her widow's garments again. And when Judah sent his payment by the hand of a friend, Hira, uh, he couldn't find this prostitute. And this put Judah and Hira in a very embarrassing situation. And if Judah reported the theft of his seal and his staff by a prostitute and pressed looking for her, it would become public knowledge that a prostitute had gotten the best of him. And so this kind of story had been swapped in jest all over the town, but Judah decided to absorb his losses and move on. Three months later, word comes that Tamar is pregnant because of this harlotry. She is officially engaged now to Shelah, the third son of Judah. And even though Judah never intended to go through with the marriage, he thought Tamar was jinxed, of course, remember? Uh, he acts highly offended. He calls for the death penalty. And she would have been put out of the picture, and Shelah uh, could take another woman for his wife. Or it could be that Judah's harsh reaction uh, uh, reflected the common double standard of that day. Men would go into prostitutes all they wanted, but women had to remain faithful. So he hypocritically condemned her for the same sin of which he was guilty. Of course, in condemning her, he was condemning himself. But, you know, remember, Tamar had covered her bases. As they were taking her out to execute her. She calmly put Judah's seal and staff and sent it to him with a message. 
I am with child by the man to whom these things belong. Do you recognize them? Well, Judah, of course, did. And he admitted that he had been wrong in giving Tamar to Sheila, as, uh, not giving him uh, her to Sheila as he had promised. Now, the striking thing about this story is the way Judah was thoroughly conformed to the corruption of Canaanite culture. I mean, he's doing everything that the world is doing around him. The same way. He's on his way to a party with a pagan friend, Hira, and he sees this prostitute. And without any thought of God, he turns aside to her. And his readiness to do this and the calm way in which he handles the negotiations show that this isn't necessarily the first time that this has taken place. And Tamar knew this also, and she wouldn't have dreamed of trying it, but when Judah finally gets caught, he doesn't say anything about his sin. He just admits that he's done wrong in not keeping his promise to give Tamar to his son. Well, you look down at the final sentence of verse 26, and it indicates a degree of repentance, or it may be simply reporting that Judah didn't marry Tamar. It says in verse 26, And Judah acknowledged them and said, She hath been more righteous than I, because that I gave her not to Shelah, my son, and he knew her again no more. We often are shocked when we hear about Christians, especially Christian leaders who fall into gross sin. But this story he is here to warn us against all of us being prone to moral corruption. If you think, well, I'd never do this. I'd never fall into this kind of sin. Then you don't know your own heart. Because Paul said, Wherefore let him that thinketh he standeth take heed, lest he fall. It can happen to anyone who drifts away from the Lord and from his people. And we all must learn some lessons from this. We all must wage war daily against the lust of the flesh. We live in a culture as corrupt as that of Canaan. You look around at our culture today, it's no different than Canaan. There are some terrible things going on. There are some terrible things going on in Spooner and in the cities around us. I don't have to ride with my police officers very long to find out some of those things are taking place in your neighborhoods. We live in a culture as corrupt as that of Canaan, and our enemy, the devil, is as much concerned to make us fall into sin as he is to bother those who make no such claim. The other thing is, we don't have to conform to the corruption around us. We, can learn, we need to learn this lesson from this, this story here. Because the next chapter, the story of Joseph in chapter 39, shows us that moral purity is possible, even in the face of aggressive evil. You don't think uh, uh, Potiphar's wife was an aggressive then you've missed the point of that story, and we haven't even got to it yet, but you know it. 
And we have this contrast here. The power for holiness comes from our God who is both holy and gracious towards sinners. And our text here not only, uh, uh, is not only how God's people are prone to corruption, but also that God's character is holiness and grace. Holiness and grace. Now what does this mean? Well, it means if God is holy and He's a God of grace, first of all, it means judgment and discipline. In our day, to sacrifice God's holiness on the altar of His grace. Christians often will excuse sin with the glib phrase, well, we're under grace. But you know what? God's grace does not exclude His judgment and discipline. Remember what it says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 and 8, Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of his flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. You may wonder, well, why did God strike down Ur and Onan for their sin, but why didn't He strike down Judah and Tamar too? Well, the answer lies hidden in the inscrutable sovereign purposes of God. For reasons known only to God, He chose to make Ur and Onan examples of His judgment, but Judah and Tamar the objects of His sovereign grace. Both cases show that God, in His holiness, will judge sinners and He'll discipline His people. And although Judah wasn't struck dead, he was disciplined by the Lord. What about losing two grown sons? He would later go on through a famine in the land and would have to bow down to his little brother, whom he despised. But I think the real toll of Judah's sin wasn't in his own lifetime. As I mentioned earlier, this chapter shows us the reason for the 400 years of slavery that the nation had to go through. And Judah's descendants went through 400 years of hardship, in part, I think, because of his sin. We may think we get away with our sin and it doesn't hurt anybody else. It's just, it's just our, uh, our sin Nobody else is going to be affected. But sin always takes a toll. We reap what we sow, and our sin is often visited on our children into the third and fourth generation. God is a holy God. And that means He must judge sin and discipline His people so that they will share His holiness. But just as God's grace doesn't eliminate His holiness, so His holiness doesn't negate His grace. And so this means favor to those deserving judgment. We see God's grace here in that this morally corrupt Canaanite culture was allowed to continue in its sinful course for another 400 years until the iniquity of the Amorite was complete. During those 400 years, any Canaanites who had heard of God's promises to Abraham and his descendants probably mocked. Abraham's descendants were in slavery in Egypt. Canaan and its godless, pleasure-seeking culture was thriving. 
And that's always the danger that during a period of God's grace, sinners will mistakenly think, well, things are okay. Uh, Things are going to go okay and they're going to be all right forever. Well, they won't. But the beauty of grace in this chapter is revealed over in Matthew chapter 1. The beauty of grace is shown where we learn that Tamar and her son Perez, born through this disgusting affair, were included in the genealogy of Jesus. Judah and Tamar were living for themselves. They were living for pleasure. And yet God used them to produce the ancestor of of the Messiah. Where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. Jesus Christ, the descendant of Judah through Tamar, was born without sin through the virgin birth so that the spotless Lamb of God, He could die as a substitute for sinners. And so God is able to do, be both holy and gracious through Christ. He is holy in all uh, that uh, all sin is punished. If a person rejects Christ, he bears the penalty for his own sin. And that is eternal separation from God in the lake of fire. If a person trusts Christ, Christ's death pays for that person's sin. See, God is gracious in extending forgiveness apart from the human merit to every sinner who will receive it. There is grace abounding for the chief of sinners. Jesus promised, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Now there are some lessons here as well. Just as God's grace doesn't eliminate holiness, so his holiness doesn't negate his grace. And also every sin or sinner will find mercy at the cross. Many of you no doubt remember reading the stories of this man if you went to a public school or to a secular college, I don't think that it would be required reading for Christian schools, but uh, this man is named Ernest Hemingway. He wrote things like, The Sun Also Rises, A Farewell to Arms, uh, For Whom the uh, Bell Tolls, uh, The Old Man in the Sea. And he won the 1953 Pulitzer Prize. In 1954, he won the Nobel Prize. He's a well-known writer. Ernest Hemingway was raised in a solidly evangelical home in Oak Park, Illinois. His godly grandparents graduated from Wheaton College. His grandfather, Anson Hemingway, shared a close friendship with the evangelist D.L. Moody. Ernest's physician father had wanted to be a missionary doctor, but his mother was too much of a city girl and she refused to go. But Ernest was raised in church where he tithed his allowance, he sang in the choir, he read completely through his King James Bible, and he passed a comprehensive exam on it. After high school, he moved to Kansas City. He became a reporter there. He stopped going to church began drifting from his upbringing. He enlisted in World War I and was wounded, and he took to drinking to ease the pain. 
He offered his sister a drink, and when she refused, he told her not to be afraid of the taste of all that which the world has to offer just because Oak Park had labeled it sinful and off-limits. Then he married a worldly woman, and he moved to Paris to further his writing career. Totally alienated from his parents, eventually he would go through four wives. He was notorious for his drunkenness. In his late years, he grew distant from everyone. He would not stand up straight, and he stopped communicating verbally. A friend said this about him, every hour was filled with the pain of being truly lost and alone. Hemingway's own description was, I live in a vacuum that is as lonely as a radio tube when the batteries are dead and there is no current to plug into. Finally, on a sunny Sunday morning in Idaho, at the age of 61, Ernest Hemingway put a shotgun to his head and pulled the trigger. Now, Hemingway's tragic life did not have to go that direction. He made some bad choices. He chose to distance himself from God's people. He chose to marry outside of the faith. And he chose to be conformed to this corrupt world. He could have availed himself to God's grace and been conformed to Jesus Christ. His children and grandchildren could have followed his footsteps. Instead, one of his beautiful, famous granddaughters took her life at the age of 42. His descendants are far from the Lord. Folks, we are all prone to corruption. The Bible says all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. We don't have to be conformed to corruption. We will avail ourselves of God's grace through the descendant of Judah and Tamar, the Lord Jesus Christ, He will keep us from the corruption of this evil world. I trust that tonight, even though this is a chapter we'd probably just rather not talk about, and I know as a preacher I'd rather not talk about it either, but I think it's important because God put it here And he put it here for our learning. Let's bow in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we pray tonight that as we've considered the lives of these who have distanced, had distanced themselves away from God's people, had chosen to marry outside of the faith and had chosen to be conformed to the corrupt society around them. Lord, help us. By your grace, keep us from this kind of life. Lord, I pray for our young people, our children. I pray, Lord, that you'll protect them. Lord, we don't want them to be corrupted by this society either. And Lord, 
that puts a tremendous responsibility on us as adults and parents and grandparents as well. Help us to be faithful, to pray, to be a good example, and to instruct our young people in that which is right. And Lord, we pray that the grace of God would enable the Spirit of God to work in their hearts, that they might be drawn closer and closer to the Lord, that our children will be saved at a young age, that they'll grow up to be godly young people and useful for the honor and glory of the Lord Jesus Christ in the harvest field. Bless as we close our service tonight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.